what we're doing at the moment is we're doing a teaching series called What a Stunner, which is basically we're talking about the gospel every week, which is a good thing to do. Um, we're looking at the gospel from different angles um, because we probably have a bit of a tendency as Christians to reduce the gospel to something much smaller than it actually is. Um, and we just think, oh, the gospel is okay, this, it's this little thing in a box, and then there's everything else, which is all like stuff that you learn after you become a Christian. And actually what we want to do with this series is to convince you the gospel is much, much bigger than you think. The gospel is far bigger than any of us can grasp. Um, and in fact, sometimes our attitude to the gospel can be a little bit like trying to say we understand what an elephant is by, use it, by looking at its toe with a magnifying glass. You're kind of there going, but I see the toe, I know what the toe is like. And you're like, no, take a step back and look at the whole elephant. And that's a little, we're not looking at an elephant, but we're looking at something that is much bigger. We're, so we want to go from looking through, a, through a, um, a magnifying glass at a toe, and we want to take a step back and say, let's look at the whole thing. Let's look at it in all its glory from loads of different perspectives. And that's what we've been doing. We've been basically tracing different stories of the gospel through the Bible. We've been tracing, so we did the story of the gospel as the tale of two cities, about Babylon and Jerusalem, and how the gospel answers the problem of the city of Babel, which is about division, and how Jerusalem, the true New Jerusalem, which is the church, answers that. And we've looked at, um, we've looked at, what was it last week? Cleansing. Yeah, we looked at loads of different themes. And what we're going to look at today is the theme God wins, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, we're looking at the theme of the gospel. The story of the gospel is God's victory over Satan, sin, death, and all evil powers, which is just brilliant. Um, I'm really looking forward to it, and you should as well, because we're going to be just hitting the face with the glory of the gospel as the defeat of evil in the cross. Um, so I think everyone, as, as I can hear, everyone likes the idea of victory. In fact, you just have to, you just have to play a, a board game with a bunch of Christians to understand that. It's, it's, it's quite scary. These lovely, kind of nice people turn into monsters as soon as you put them in a game of Articulate or Monopoly. Um, but on, on a more serious level, everyone does want victory. That is something that is at the very heart of, of humans. Whether that's the five-year-old who wants victory over the bully at school, or if that's the 25-year-old who wants victory in the business that he's just joined, or if that's the 45-year-old single mum who wants victory over cancer, everyone wants victory in, in a particular area. And I think there's a reason for that, is that actually God's put in us a desire for there to be victory. And we might often direct that desire onto something which isn't actually godly, but that desire is something which comes from God, because the story that we're part of is the story of God defeating Satan's sin and death. The biggest victory of all time. So we're going to trace that through and um, basically have a look at what happens. So we're going to kick off in, um, what, what we're doing is we're kind of taking through four steps. Um, we're looking through a theme in the Bible by looking at four steps. Creation and fall, number one. Number two is the story of Israel, which pretty much takes up the bulk of the Old Testament. Jesus, and then new creation. And so we're just going to kind of go through those four different steps and looking at the theme of victory um, and kind of tracing the story through. So we're going to start with creation and fall. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis. That tends to be the place you start if you're doing creation and fall. Um, so Genesis tells the story of God who creates a world and who wants to make an amazing world. So he creates mountains, he creates um, birds, he creates, I don't know, I was about to say bees. That just <laughs> creates birds, bees, <laughs> mammals, fish, sea, everything, the whole lot. God creates this amazing, massive world and then God says, actually, I want to create one more thing because I want to create a creature who, instead of reflecting me like the mountains do and instead of reflecting me like the fish do and the, other, and the mammals do and like all of the plants do, I'm going to create someone who is going to reflect me in a very particular way. I'm going to create human beings. 
and they're actually going to reflect, like Steph spoke about a few weeks ago, the image of God. They're going to reflect me in a way that other creatures aren't going to be able to do that. And we're going to quickly read what, um, what God says about human beings. So Genesis 1, um, 26, 28, God says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We haven't yet, yet. Okay, uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates humans. And he creates humans in a very special, special way in his image. In other words, we're a little bit like mirrors. When people look at us, they see a reflection, or they should see a reflection of what God is like. That's part of what being made in God's image means. And we, which means we reflect God in a way that other animals and other pieces of creation don't reflect. But one of the bits um, of how we reflect God's character that I want to look at today is the idea of having dominion. Having dominion and subduing the earth. Now, a bit of audience participation. What kind of a person has dominion? I heard it. Say it louder, Dave Mans. A king. Very good. Brilliant. You got A star for you there on that, on that test. Kings. Kings have dominion over things, don't they? Kings rule. Kings subdue. Kings are the ones who have dominion. In fact, in the ancient world, people often spoke of kings as created in the image of the gods. So the, God's making a point here. He's saying, I am creating human beings in a sense, to be kings on my behalf. Now, what kings do is they rule, they subdue, but they also have to conquer and defend their territory. That's what a king, a king is responsible for making sure that he expands. Obviously, we don't generally think of that in the monarchy in England, but it's kind of a bit different. But in the ancient world, kings would expand their territory. They would subdue, they'd go and conquer other nations, and if other nations tried to conquer them, they would have to defend it. That's what a king does. So God's saying, I want you to advance my kingdom in all of the world. I want you to fill it, I want you to go and spread my rule over the whole of the earth, and I want to subdue, and if ever evil tries to get into my creation, you have the responsibility of defending it. That's what being made in the image of God means. It means evil comes, your responsibility is get rid of it. Like a king would. If an army's coming to attack a king's nation, the king has the responsibility of making sure that the nation gets defended. And so God's saying that. And so what we're going to do now is look at the first battle that the Bible describes in terms of human beings defending God's creation, or as we'll see, not defending God's creation against the powers of evil. So if we could have the passage up from Genesis 3. Okay, so what's happened is God's created a, a garden in, in Eden, and he's put the human, first two human beings, Adam and Eve, in that garden, and has given them this commission. And then what happens is he says, okay, you can eat anything in the whole of this garden, the whole of creation, everything goes, apart from this one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, that tree, you can't eat of it. Don't go there. The day you eat of it, you will die. Okay, so that's the context. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is the serpent, who's kind of Satan in disguise, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it. 
and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Might not look like it, but what we have there is the description of the first battle of evil against humanity. As we can see, evil wins. What humans do at this point, rather, when, when the snake comes into the garden, their responsibility was to say, wait, you're not supposed to be here. Go away. We're going to defeat you and conquer you. That's what humans are supposed to do at that point. But instead, what they do is basically the same as an army coming up to a castle and saying, oh, guys, we're, we're the enemies. Can you let us in? And the king going, okay, yeah, guys, let's just open the draw gate. Let's drop, uh, don't, don't worry about battle. They're basically inviting the enemy in. It's as ridiculous as a king opening the gates of his castle to a foreign nation that's come with a load of, a load of warriors. You don't do that. But that's what the first humans did. Instead of destroying the serpent, which they should have done, they let the serpent in. And as a result, what happens is a curse comes on the whole of creation, which we're still bearing the consequences of. That was the first defeat that happened. The first battle that happened between hum- we've, that we've got recorded in the scriptures between human beings and evil, human beings let evil into the garden and failed. And as a result, Satan, sin, and death were allowed into God's good creation, which they were never supposed to be in. Humans failed. And as a result of that, they get get cursed. But during the curse, when God is cursing the serpent for what he's done, he says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the really important thing. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in the middle of the curse, you've got a promise. One day, there's going to be a descendant of the woman who is going to come along, and is going to meet Satan face to face, and instead of letting him in, is going to go crush his head. In the process his heel's going to be wounded. Now, we know who this is, don't we? As Christians, we know this is ultimately a promise about Jesus. But what I want to do is imagine we didn't know. Imagine we're reading the story for the first time, and you see this promise. There's a, there's a descendant of the woman who's going to come and is going to crush Satan. What are you thinking throughout the whole of the story? You're constantly thinking, is this the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent? What about this person? What about this? Is this the one? No, that one's not. No, it's not going to be that one. Is, you're constantly waiting. We're waiting for the person who's going to come and crush the serpent for good. Which is what we're going to look at for the rest of the story. We're going to try and trace that theme all the way through. So what happens is humans are banished from God's presence. They get driven out of the garden. And what happens for the next, pretty much the next seven chapters of scripture is judgment, sin, death. Pretty much this is what happens when humans fail as, um, in, in being God's image bearers. What happens in Genesis 12 is God calls a man called Abraham, who's a pagan worshipper, never heard of God before, and he appears to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing, and in you, all of the nations are going to be blessed. Language of blessing remind you of anything? First passage we read out, God blesses human beings and says, go and fill the earth. In other words, God's saying to Abraham, through your descendants, the snake is going to get crushed. Through your descendants, the curse that was brought on humanity as a result of Adam's sin is going to be undone. And so at that point, we're thinking, ah, okay, we have a bit more, like, we've got an extra clue. It's going to come through this man's line. And he's basically the father of Israel. He has a son Isaac. Then he has a son called Jacob. Then you have the 12 12 patriarchs. What happens after a while is they end up going to the nation of Egypt. They end up, after 400 years, getting oppressed 
by the Egyptians. And finally, God raises up a man called Moses. And you reading the story of Moses are thinking, wait a minute, this could be the guy who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Is this the one who's going to undo evil for good? He looks quite likely. He goes into Egypt and he speaks to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses does basically represents God and does great as God does great signs and wonders. And eventually Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let your people go. And they go out and they go through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And you're thinking, oh, maybe Moses is the guy who's going to crush the serpent's head. What happens is Israel basically end up rebelling and getting grumpy and end up wandering around for 40 years. Israel are failing. It doesn't look like actually... And Moses ends up dying in the wilderness as well. Moses is obviously not the guy who's going to crush the serpent's head. After a while, they end up going into the land that God's promised them. God had promised a land to Abraham. There's a land that's now kind of modern-day Palestine, that, that area. They go into that land... And they have to conquer the nations that are there. And they conquer some of them, and a lot of them they don't. Until now, we still haven't seen the offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Every single person you come across, you think, it could be Joshua, the guy who's leading the attack on the promised land. Um, Oh no, he died as well. He didn't crush the serpent's head. Then you get loads of different judges who are kind of local leaders who are saving God's people from the enemies as they come along. And you think, maybe it's Samson. And you think, definitely not Samson. The guy's very dodgy. Um, ends up sleeping around with a load of women, he's pretty much definitely not going to cross the serpent's heads. And eventually what happens is Israel asks for a king. They say, we want to have a king, we want to be like the nations all around us. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And so he gives them a king called Saul, and Saul starts off well. He's kind of head and shoulders above everyone else, he seems to be pretty godly, and so you're reading it and thinking, wait a minute, we've got a king. Humans were created in God's image to be kings, we've got a king this guy's going to crush the serpent's head. If you know the story of Saul, you realize it starts off well, and then he ends up not trusting God and rebelling. Saul is not going to crush the serpent's head. What we get after Saul is probably the most likely candidate in the whole of the Old Testament for being the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. And I want to go through a very familiar Bible story with you. You'll probably know it even if you're not a Christian. You'll probably have heard of it. It's kind of a classic underdog story. But we're going we're gonna to go through it together. And so if we can open our Bibles in 1 Samuel 17. Let me just turn so I'm not facing away from you for the whole time. Um, I'm sure you love the side of the back of my head. 1 Samuel 17. Okay. So we're going to read 1 Samuel 17, 1 to 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Okay, so let's imagine these guys over here are the Philistines. So they are, they are basically people who've come from the sea. They've come into Israel, and they're trying to attack and take over the Israelites. So these guys are the Philistines, so they can get booze from the people in general. Very good. They're the bad guys. Okay? And they were gathered at Sokol, between, uh, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokol and Azekar in Ephesh Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. So these guys are going to be the Israelites. They're the good guys. There we go. Okay, and drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, okay, over here, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So we've got a valley here, we've got a mountain there, a mountain there. Now, if, you're, if you've got a battle and you've got two armies on a mountain, you're not going to want to be the first person who goes into the valley. So basically, we've got a deadlock situation going on. Okay, and there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion called Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Can Goliath, wherever he is, come out? Huh? Where's um, Mactuno gone? 
Oh, you're good. Okay, you're going to have to come out of this camp. <laughs> there we go. Oh. Okay, this is Goliath of Gath, played by Maktuno of Kentish Town, whatever. Of Bromley. Ken <laughs> Bromley. Okay, his height was six cubits and a span. He's not quite as tall as Goliath, but he's pretty big. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head and, he had, um, and was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's, that's heavy. Don't worry about doing the math. It's heavy. Okay? And his shield bearer went before him and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. So you come out of the camp and he shouts to the ranks of Israel... Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. There we go. <laughs> this is like doing kids' work. And let him come to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and service. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Sounds like a pretty good deal. If you've got a deadlock in battle... That's a pretty good deal. Let's just have man on man, in the valley, fight to the death. Whoever wins, their army wins. Fair enough. That's kind of what happened a lot in ancient warfare. Only problem is verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, uh, the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. These guys are terrified. And for 40 days, not one person steps out. There is not one Israelite who says, we're going to take on God's enemy. We're going to take on this guy because God is with us. Not one of them. Okay, now what I haven't told you is that a chapter before, in chapter 16, we meet a guy called David. Now David is just a shepherd boy. But what's happened is God has rejected Saul. And he's spoken to Samuel, who's a guy who's a prophet. He's a guy who hears from God. And he's the guy who goes around with oil and anoints the kings. Okay, and God says to Samuel, I've found a man who's after my own heart, who trusts me. And he's going to be king in Saul's place. And he went to find this guy, and to cut a long story short, David, who's only a shepherd boy, ends up getting anointed as, as king over Israel. Bear that in mind, that has happened just in the chapter before. No one knows about this. Okay, can David come out of the ranks of Israel, please, Luke Ellis? Now, a bit of detail. The reason I chose Luke Ellis is actually down to Matt Fox. Matt Fox um, has often noted that Dave is ruddy and handsome. And... <laughs> I hate to say he's right that the Hebrew word for ruddy actually has the same root as red. So we've chosen, we've chosen Luke to be David. So David comes out of the camp and he goes to see King Saul and he says, why is no one going to fight this guy? I'm going to fight him. God's with me. And Saul says, no, you can't do it. And after a while of arguing, David gets his way and says, no, I trust in the Lord and the Lord will deliver this Philistine into my hand. And so David, eventually Saul lets him go. So David grabs his slingshot, picks up a few stones and goes into the valley, and as he arrives, <laughs> as he arrives, Goliath starts taunting him. So the enemy starts taunting him, and says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds, I'm going to crush you. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take that bit off the recording. <laughs> okay. David doesn't reply with taunts on his own strength. David replies, the Lord will hand you into my hands and I'm going to overcome you with his strength. And what he does, swings his slingshot and we know the story. 
the most anticlimactic death I've ever seen. <laughs> very good, thank you. Okay, you guys can go back to your seats. Thank you very much. Okay, we all know that story, and we often speak of it as, come on guys, trust in God and you can overcome your Goliaths. But actually, the reason I told you about what has just happened to David before telling that story is we sh- we're not supposed to primarily read that as a, guys, you can overcome the enemy if you just have faith. What we're supposed to read, that, that's true, okay? I'm not gonna, I don't want to diminish that. But primarily, that story is about God's anointed has just defeated Israel's enemy on behalf of Israel. And who gets to join in the victory? whole of God's people. The whole of God's people get to join in the victory. It's like watching the Olympics and saying, we won, what is it, 27 gold medals? We didn't. You didn't win those medals. We sat on our sofas and watched Mo Farah run the 10,000 metres, but because he ran it on our behalf, we get to say, as Great Britain, we won. The Israelites get to say, because God's anointed won on our behalf, we get to be included in the victory. Remind you of anyone? We're going to see that in a few minutes. So at this point, you're reading the story and you're thinking, this guy is surely the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. He's a king. Well, he ends up being king. He has a bit of of trouble before he becomes king, but he becomes king eventually. He ends up stretching the kingdom of Israel, probably almost to the furthest reaches you get in the Old Testament. His son Solomon does a bit after as well. But he basically has victory after victory, and you think, this is the guy who's going to crush the serpent's head. But it doesn't take long to find out that David for all of his strength, suffers with exactly the same problem as the rest of humanity. And he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba. He ends up, and ends up having her husband killed, so he gets away with it. He ends up taking, it's a bit weird, we don't understand exactly why he wasn't allowed, but God told him not to take a census of the people, and he did. And as a result, tens of thousands of people were hit with a plague for it. David had the same symptom as the rest of humanity. He didn't crush the serpent's head. Neither did his son Solomon. Neither did his son, Rehoboam. And actually, what happened at that point is Israel kind of get, ends up going downhill. From so- after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, which was kind of united, this big empire around David and around Solomon, because of Solomon's disobedience, God says, I'm going to break the whole thing in half. I'm going to choose ten tribes who are going to be the northern tribes. They're going to be called Israel. And I'm going to split them from the southern tribes who are going to be called Judah. Two tribes biggest one's Judah, so they get called Judah. So the whole kingdom of Israel gets split in half. God's chosen people split in half. The northern tribes, you can read about it in 1 and 2 Kings, there is not one godly good king who comes out of them. Not one. They go on a crash course collision with catastrophe, and eventually, a few centuries later, in 722 BC, the Assyrians wipe them out completely. We never hear of them again. They're taken out of the story. Judah ends up hanging on a little bit longer. It's kind of up and down. You are reading their story thinking, oh, could this, this king's better. Could he be the one who crushes the serpent's head? Well, oh, no, definitely not that one. But this one, no, oh, no, not that one either. But eventually they as well completely turn away from God. And God says, I'm not going to completely reject you because you are my promised people, but I'm going to discipline you and send you into exile, into Babylon. Which is what we heard about a few weeks ago. The city of Babylon, they get taken away into exile in 586 BC and the whole of Jerusalem is destroyed. Where's the victory? Where's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? We haven't seen him yet. Our greatest candidate has failed. He has not crushed Satan, sin, and death. It hasn't happened yet. Judah eventually return from exile. 
with lots of big promises. You can read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you're like, yes, this is going to be an amazing return. They're going to come back, and the whole of the world is going to be made better. And, event- and actually what happens is they end up being a very small enclave in a massive Persian empire. It doesn't really look like they're winning. And basically, the next 500 years of history, all the way up to 0 AD, is defeat, defeat, dominion, the odd uprising, where they kind of take a little bit of ground, but then defeat. Where's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Still hasn't come up. Till eventually, in about 30 AD, another likely candidate comes along. This is a guy who was called Yeshua ben Yosef. You may have heard of him as Jesus of Nazareth. And he walked around, and he did amazing signs and wonders. He would walk up to people and he would pray for them. He wouldn't even pray. He would command sickness to go. And suddenly, people who had not been able to walk from birth got up and walked. He would go to people who, had, who were completely enchained and demon-possessed and the demons themselves would, would make the person run up to him. They'd bow down in front of him and say, we know who you are. You're God's son. He walked around and he taught with such authority and such power that the religious leaders of the day said, we've never heard anyone speak like this before. He ended up being tempted for 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness. Remember, 40 years in the wilderness for Israel earlier? They failed. He gets tempted for 40 days. He succeeds. Looks like he's winning. He ends up doing signs and wonders, teaching that the kingdom of God's coming through him. He ends up saying, follow me, and people just drop everything and follow him looks like he's winning but then what happens is he ends up going to Jerusalem during Passover and it all starts off really well he, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and loads of people around him are shouting Hosanna to the king Hosanna to the son of David he's going to come and free us he's going to come and set us free and within a week he's hanging on a Roman cross now we think of the cross and we think Jesus that's pretty much the association we make if you, were living, if you were a Jew living in those days, the cross, well, the cross means a few things, but the cross means one big thing. It means we lose, Rome wins. That's what the cross means. The, Rome, the Romans crucified people as a way of saying, don't mess with us. We're in charge around here. We win. So this guy, who looked like probably the most likely candidate yet, the guy's, he's casting demons out of people. He's healing the sick. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom coming. is hanging on the instrument which says, Rome wins, you lose. Imagine you're a disciple, one of the disciples who didn't run away when Jesus was crucified, and you're looking at Jesus being crucified. And you're hearing him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're going to be despairing at that point. And you hear him say those words that we love, it's finished. You're not going to be thinking, yes, it's finished, you paid for my sins. You're going to be thinking, yeah, you're right, it is. You're another one of those messianic pretenders who the Romans crucified. That's what they do with all of them, and you're just at the end of a long chain of them. We're just going to give up. That's what you'd be thinking if you were a disciple standing there. Heaven had a very different perspective on the cross. Heaven saw things very differently. If we open up Revelation 5, we need to read Revelation more as Christians. We really, we really do. It's one of those books that we get scared of because it is difficult to understand but it is probably my favourite book in the Bible because it is absolute dynamite. It uses, it, it basically, it describes things that you cannot put into human words. It's a way of kind of stripping back all of the language that we have and saying, we can't describe this in real terms, we're going to have to use this incredible imagery. But I think one of the reasons we're often scared of it is we often think of it as trying to predict the future. 
we think the whole of Revelation is about this code where you have to like put this puzzle together. You're trying to solve Sudoku or something and trying to figure out exactly what happens and who the, who's going to be the beast and whether it's the United States and all of that kind of stuff. And we get scared of it. We get scared of it because we think no one understands it. People come up with weird interpretations of it. But the problem is, it's because we think oh, it's all predicting the future. And yes, there are chapters that predict the future. Steph has read them out over the last few weeks. But what Revelation does, the word Revelation just means an unveiling. What Revelation does is it strips back the curtain and says, look at what's going on behind the scenes. It's a bit like the silly example, but Wallace and Gromit a close shave. Anyone seen that? There's a, okay, I'll ruin the plot for you. There's a nasty dog in that. And what happens? What's his name? Preston, that's it. And what happens eventually, so he, he ends up doing all this nasty stuff, and eventually he ends up falling into this machine, and everyone's like, yes, he's going to die. And he comes out, and he's actually a robot. What's happened is he's, he's had all of the kind of the stuff ripped off of him, and suddenly you go, oh, that's what's going on behind. That's what Revelation does. It strips back everything human. <laughs> Bear with me. It strips back everything and says, let's look behind the scenes at what's going on. Let's look at what's really going on behind. Let's look at heaven's perspective on things. That's what Revelation does. So if you want to understand what, what heaven's perspective on the cross is, so remember, we're the disciples standing there going, it's over. It's all over. He has been crushed by the Romans. We've got to go. Heaven says this. And what I'm going to do is explain it as I read so you get the full force of the end of the passage. So John has just had a vision of heaven opens. He's had a vision of God's throne, and God is seated on his throne, and he's completely surrounded by angelic beings all singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and, is, and heaven is singing and praising God and then he sees in chapter 5 he says then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals now in Revelation this scroll represents the unfolding of history and at the moment it's sealed up in other words, as long as this, this scroll remains sealed up, history is not going to come to its climax. History is not going anywhere. It's all futile. So that's what, that's what that represents. And I saw a, la- a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Remind you of a story we've looked at? I defy the ranks of Israel. Come and face me. If you defeat me, you'll win. No one comes forward. Who's worthy to open the scroll and look into its seals? Who is worthy to unfold history so that it comes to its climax? And no one is found worthy. And what happens is John starts crying. Because at this point, he understands that if no one opens the scroll, the world is basically just keep going in circles. There is no hope, no climax, nothing. If the scroll remains shut, we have absolutely no hope. Nothing is going to happen. So you can understand why John's weeping. He's writing to persecuted churches. They are being killed for their faith. If the scroll remains shut, that's it. That is what their life is going to be and there is no hope whatsoever. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's a saviour 
who is worthy to open the scrolls. And John has been told, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the true descendant of David, the one who's going to crush the ultimate Goliath, has conquered so he can open the scroll. At this point, John is probably expected to turn around and see this massive warrior, this incredibly strong guy. Instead, this is what he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the spirits, seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. John, expect, John expects to see this mighty conquering lion, and instead he sees a lamb that looks like it's been killed. John sees what's going on at the cross. John sees, he, he expects this conquering Messiah, like the, like the disciples did, and instead he sees a lamb. He sees someone hanging on a cross. But here's what we find out about the lamb. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell face down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Worthy are you to open the scroll and to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people and language. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And I looked... And I heard around the throne and, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What is it that makes heaven sing a new song? We heard chapter 4, they have been singing holy, holy, holy for centuries. Read Isaiah 6. They've been singing it for centuries. And they've probably been singing it from the dawn of time. Heaven loves repetitive choruses because they never get over what God is like. What is it that, what, what does it take to make heaven add a new song? What it takes is the apparent defeat of a messianic pretender in AD 30, hanging on a cross, which the disciples looked at and thought he's been defeated. Heaven looked at and said, the lion's conquered. He's won. He has defeated sin. He has defeated Satan. He has conquered. And it's precisely in becoming the lamb that he has conquered. Heaven looks at... Heaven will never get over the cross. The cross was not a blip. It wasn't like just kind of, oh, it's a necessary thing to get over and we'll forget about it. Heaven will sing of the cross forever. For eternity, heaven will say, worthy is the lamb. They don't say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. No, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The cross is an absolute victory. It makes heaven sing. I'm going to read a beginning of a chapter out from a guy called Andrew Wilson who says it much better than I can about the cross being a victory. He says, there has only ever been one victory, literally, in all of history, there has only ever been one contest that you could look back to centuries later and agree it was won, permanently and definitively, by one side, just one in millions of attempts. Think about the contenders. The Assyrians beat all their rivals in the 8th century BC, but then lost to the Babylonians in the 7th, who lost to the Persians in the 6th, who got wiped out by the Greeks in the 4th, who crumbled in on themselves in the 3rd, and so on. The Romans crushed all before them for four centuries, but they eventually lost too. Just like the Goths, the Vikings, the Mongols, the Spanish, the British, everybody since. IBM was dominant for a generation and then lost to Microsoft. 
who now look, they might look well like they might lose to Apple. England defeated all corners in the 2003 Rugby World Cup and then lost pretty much to everyone. True victory, conquering rivals completely and permanently, is unheard of, with one exception. In AD 30, a three-day campaign was waged by God against all his most powerful enemies, sometimes referred to as rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers. The main confrontation took place on a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, where God, in his son, Jesus, met Satan, sin, and death head-on. A mocking enemy was met by a defiant son of God, and within six hours, the one-sided battle was over. And the victory triumphantly announced with the words, It is finished. On the third day, the victory parade began, and the risen champion came out of the tomb to the amazement of the earth and the applause of heaven. As Paul describes it in Colossians 2.15, God obliterated his enemies in Jesus, took away their armor, and made a public spectacle of them by parading their corpses through the streets. Weep no more. The lion has conquered. Because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate victory has been won. The descendant who will crush the serpent's head and has crushed the serpent's head has arrived. We're living at the cl- we, have, we live in the time after the climax of the cross. We live in the time where the serpent's head has been crushed at the cross. And we need, don't need to weep the tears of despair that history is never going to go to get, reach its fulfillment. There are a lot of tears in this life. There are tears of joy. There are tears of sadness. There are tears of mourning. But there's one kind of tear that Christians never need to cry. And those are the tears of despair that, that, the, that nothing's ever going to get better. That is one thing that Christians do never need to cry about. We can mourn, we can cry about things. But because of the victory of Jesus, we don't ever have to cry the tears that say nothing's going to happen, the scroll's going to remain shut, and history's not going to come to its climax. The lamb, the lion, has conquered in Jesus. And as a result of that, going to finish on this there is a day coming where God will finally destroy death itself there's a day coming because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus where death itself is going to be defeated because at the moment you look around and you think it doesn't look like Jesus has won completely over everything that's because there's a day coming where the victory of the cross will not only extend to individual believers' lives, but will extend to the whole of the cosmos and the whole of creation. And we're going to finish by reading 1 Corinthians 15, which is just an absolute dynamite of a chapter, about the defeat of death. Because the lion has won, and because he has died, because the lamb has died and has risen from the dead, we know there is a day where God is going to physically raise those who are part of his people. It's not like we're going to die and then just float off into disembodied bliss. A day is coming where God is going to say, enough. I'm wrapping everything up and I'm going to destroy death. And this is what's going to happen when that day comes. We're going to have the last passage up. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying is written. Really? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? There is a day coming where we as God's people will stand in physical, resurrected bodies, look death in the face, and say, where's your victory? It's done. 
It's finished. You have been swallowed up in victory. It's like that Jaws 2 poster where that, there's, you've got that girl in front of you who's about to be swallowed up by this massive shark. God is going to engulf death in victory. There's a day where death will be defeated and we will stand there and taunt it and say, we're going to live forever with him in a new creation where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where not only the tears of despair that the world's never going to come to its climax, that's been wiped away already. But every tear of oppression, every tear of persecution, every tear of loss, every tear of mourning is going to be wiped away from our faces and we will stand there and God will look at us and smile and say, look, I'm making all things new because the Lamb has conquered. God wins. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God wins. And as a result, we can do what Paul says in the next bit, which is, therefore, brothers, verse 59, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can keep going and pushing on for Christ. Can I invite you, if you're a Christian, let's keep going. Let's not give up. Because we have a hope that says the Lamb's conquered and one day he's going to swallow death in victory. There's no, there's, there's no giving up needed because we have a guarantee that one day everything is going to be made new and death itself is going to be defeated. If you're, if you're here today and you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I'm not a Christian. Can I invite you? Why don't you join the winning half? Why don't you join the winning side? You can't win on your own. Okay, that's a very easy, particularly in Western culture, it's like, oh, I'll just I'll do it on my own, I'll figure it out. You won't. The Lamb has conquered. He's the one in whom we have the victory. It says in Revelation 12, it says, the saints overcame by the blood of the Lamb. It's because of his death and his resurrection that we have any claim to victory whatsoever. So there is an appropriate triumphalistic attitude as Christians. Not one that says, we're going to take on the world and everything is going to be better. But an attitude that says, the victory is secure, the victory has been won, it's guaranteed, therefore let's keep going. And if you're not part of that, I don't, can I invite you, why don't you join the winning team? Why don't you join the winning team? Come and like, I don't know, find, find someone who brought you after, just chat to them and say, I want to find out more about this. But please don't sit on the fence. This is life or death. This is about the whole of eternity being changed. But the rest of us, I think we're going to... I don't know what time it is. We're going to... Okay, we've got about half an hour. So we're going to praise God. We're going to take communion together. As we take communion, let's, let's remind ourselves the victory is won. We're breaking bread and drinking the wine to remember not just the, the horror of the cross, but the victory of the cross. Let's be like heaven. Let's not forget. Let's not be embarrassed about the cross. Let's sing about it. Let's glory in it. Let's love Jesus for the cross. And let's take bread and wine together in, a, in, a, in a, just a, an attitude of victory. The victory's been won. We didn't win it, but we get to join in because of that. God has won. So let's, uh, let's, let's all stand. Let's let the, the band come up. We're, we're going to sing. Um, but let's, yeah, let's just kind of gather together and let's pray and then sing. Father, I thank you that you won. Thank you that the Lamb has conquered. Thank you that death itself is guaranteed to be defeated one day. And Lord God, we just, we love the gospel. We love Jesus. We love the fact that we get to be on the winning side through no effort of ourselves. 
we get to be those who were in absolute darkness brought out of that because of the victory that was won at the cross. Father, we thank you for that. Father, would you remind us of that? Would we be like heaven? Would we be like heaven and say, we glory in the cross? Far be it from me that I should boast in anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, where the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. Would we glory in the cross? Would we glory in the resurrection? Would we glory in the gospel? And would we praise you, Lord? Would you come and dwell in our midst? We love you. We praise you. Amen.